Lord, we come before you. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, God, that you would teach us through this text. Lord, that you would pierce our hearts as we dive into something pretty difficult. Lord, something challenging. I pray that you would give us the humility to receive correction, that we would be aware of of what things in our life uh, need to change, and we'd be willing to change them. Lord, so bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So if you recall, last week uh, we started the first day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And I'll continue to remind you, but I think it's really cool, that when you add up all the Gospels, all the chapters in the four Gospels, we see that almost 33% of the Gospel writing is about the last week of Jesus Christ. Meaning we're talking about Matthew and Luke, talking about when Jesus was born all the way to his death. There's some gaps, big gaps. A lot of the Gospels focus on his ministry, but primarily the the main uh, area of the Lord's life that's documented in the Scriptures is his last week, uh, which is interesting because I believe the Lord has just some really powerful things that he wants to communicate to all of us as we discuss the things that happen in that last week. Now, last week we discussed how Jesus entered into Jerusalem, right? And when he entered into Jerusalem, he told two of his disciples to get a donkey. And this was to fulfill scripture that his, the king would come lowly sitting on a donkey. And we see the people, they greeted him, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, just as we were singing. But the people... They were praising him with false expectations. See, they thought that Jesus came to deliver them from Roman rule. Yes, it's true. Jesus came to deliver them, but he didn't come to deliver them from Roman rule. He came to deliver them from sin. So the people, these same people that are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, praising him, worshiping him, when he doesn't live up to their expectations, the same group of people will say on Friday, crucify him crucify him and we discussed our heart behind why we praise him in fact that was the title of the teaching why do you praise him and do we praise the lord and the good and the bad do we praise him with these false expectations do we praise him with a false belief about who he is or do we worship the god that's been revealed through the scripture because if they would have known the scripture if they would have known it They would have recognized their Messiah. They would have recognized in his first coming, he came as the suffering servant. Yes, in his second coming, he would come like that Davidic type king that they were expecting. So right after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, one of the first things he does is cleanse the temple. Now, this is the second time he cleansed the temple. He did it in the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. He does it again at the end of his ministry, emphasizing the importance of this. And there's so much we're going to pull from it. But this was something that was very important to Jesus, that the temple would be cleansed so that people could seek God, that there wouldn't be a barrier. And we know several occasions, we'll point to some of them, the Bible says... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, this message, what Jesus does in this text, this wasn't just to correct the religious leaders, the businessmen, the money changers. This text, it's for us. And just as Jesus comes in and cleans house in this temple, he wants to come in and clean house in our temple as well. Which brings me to the title of the teaching, Cleansing your temple. Cleansing your temple. Now I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This isn't a feel good message. Okay. I I don't think that's the Lord heart, his heart behind this. This is a challenging message. This isn't love, grace, mercy. Okay. Yes. We'll talk about love. And the reason that he does this is because of love, because of grace. But this is a very challenging text. And I believe the Lord wants to use this text to challenge each of us in our walk. Speaking of the text, let's read it. If you would with me, Matthew chapter 21, we'll read verses 12 to 17, get the big picture, then we'll break it down. Then verse 12, Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. 
and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there real quick. Jesus, obviously cleansing the temple, many purposes behind why he's doing this, but let's first understand what temple this is. If you recall, back in Exodus, God had given Moses direction to build a tabernacle, right? And that tabernacle uh, was basically where God's presence would reside. Yes, he's, he's omnipresent, he's all-present, but it was the place where Moses could interact with God, one of the places. He'd also go to the mountain, and God's glory would fill the tabernacle but the tabernacle wasn't meant to stay put see the tabernacle would get packed up by the levites and they would move the tabernacle from place to place as the people wandered in the wilderness later on we see david he asks god if he can build a house for him and god declines his request because david had too much blood on his hands but he says i'll allow your son to build a house for me And so Solomon went ahead and he built this magnificent temple. That was the very first temple. Okay, first temple. Later on, as the people fall into sin, we'll get into this a little bit uh, in more detail. But the people fall into sin. They're not really seeking God. They're worshiping idols in the temple. Uh, God uses Nebuchadnezzar leading the Babylonians to bring destruction to Israel. And ultimately, in 587 B.C., he does just that. The Babylonians destroy the temple. Now, later on, after Persia takes over Babylon, we see that there's a man by the name of Zerubbabel that's sent back to Israel, specifically Jerusalem, to build another temple. Now, Zerubbabel builds this temple. This is the temple that we're discussing here. But this temple is referred to as Herod's temple. Why? Well, Zerubbabel built it, but Herod, he performed all these upgrades. He, he made the temple nicer and neater and added things to it. So it's referred to as Herod's temple. This temple as well would be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Okay, so this is the second temple. Okay, there's going to be a third temple and then possibly a fourth talk about some stuff in revelation but this is this is the second temple just to understand which temple we're talking about again referred to as herod's temple so let's look back in matthew chapter 21 verse 12 so then jesus went into the temple of god and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves so jesus he goes into the temple now this isn't the first time he goes into the temple And we actually see a pattern by which the Lord enters the temple. First time we see him enter the temple is in John chapter 2. The first time he enters the temple, he cleanses the temple. The second time he enters the temple is in John chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles. And he teaches in the temple. Okay? This gives us a spiritual principle to understand that for us to be able to fully receive the teaching of the word of God, our temple must be cleansed. And he doesn't just do it one time, he does it again. For the second, so this is the third time he enters the temple, he cleanses it again, later he'll come back to teach in it. See, our temples, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it needs to be cleansed for us to get the fullness of the word of God. Now, this applies in so many different ways, but see, sin separates us from God. And not only does it separate us from God, sin prevents us from seeking God. What do I mean? When we're in sin, we don't always want to go to God. Like, I don't really want to go to the church. I don't really want to seek God in the Word. I don't really want to pray to God. There's that barrier. I I don't have a, a desire as much because I'm in sin and I'm actually choosing my sin over seeking God. 
You've heard it said many times in different ways. This book will keep you away from sin, but sin will keep you away from this book. There's an old activity that we used to do where we'd get the students, their hands all dirty with, uh, with molasses and dirt, okay? And they'd stick their hands in the molasses, and then they'd stick their hands in the dirt, and then we'd ask them to open up their Bible. They'd be like, I don't want to open up, but my hands are dirty. Exactly. That's a physical illustration of a spiritual lesson that when our hands are dirty, when we're in sin, it's like, I don't really want to go there. I don't really want to seek God in his word. I feel unclean. And that's the point. The Lord, he wants us to, he wants to cleanse our temple so that we can be clean and seek God. Now, the Lord, yes, he cleanses the temple, but there's also a responsibility that we have in leading ourselves to a place of cleansing. What do I mean? Confession and repentance leads to cleansing. Point number one, confession leads to cleansing. Confession leads to cleansing. If you would with me, in 1 John chapter 1, you can just hold your, your place there for a minute. We're going to be kind of everywhere today. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord is faithful and he's faithful to forgive. In fact, that's why Jesus died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven, that we could have relationship with God. Big picture, little picture. There's a reality that when we sin, we're obviously called to confess. Now, confession of sin, it doesn't just mean, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Okay, if you say it, that's not a bad thing, but the Lord, for us to confess sincerely, we got to be specific because it's not just about confession, it's about confession and repentance. See, confession without repentance is like a ship without a sail. It's floating, but it ain't going anywhere. The Lord wants us to both confess and repent. And if we are confessing generally and not specifically, how are we going to repent? What do I mean? Lord, forgive me of my sins, but I don't even know what my sins are. How am I going to repent of those things that I don't know what they are? The Lord wants us to be specific. For example, Lord, forgive me of my pride. Forgive me of the way that I, that I lashed out. Forgive me of my lust, my greed, my selfishness. Whatever that specific sin is, the Lord wants us to be specific in our confession so that we're not just forgiven, but we're able to repent of those things. But look at this. Back in 1 John, he says this. We know... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love to focus on the forgiveness part, but not on the cleansing part. What do I mean? The Lord will forgive us, but he'll also cleanse us. There's an example in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Don't turn there. I'll tell you the story. You know it. It was David. He was falling into complacency and comfort. He ended up giving into temptation. He slept with another man's wife, right? Bathsheba. Yeah, and then when he couldn't kind of figure out the situation and have Uriah sleep with Bathsheba because Bathsheba got pregnant, he ended up killing Uriah too. So adultery and murder. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, a prophet by the name of Nathan comes to him, confronts him and says basically, hey, this is what you did. You sinned against the Lord. And what does David do? He confesses and he says, oh my gosh, I didn't see it like that. Forgive me of my sins. Now, the consequences for adultery was to be killed. It was capital punishment. It was stoning. So David, he deserved to die by law. But that's not what happens. Because he confessed, Nathan says to him, God's going to forgive you of your sins. He forgave them, forgave them, but there was still that cleansing that needed to happen. What do I mean? See, cleansing often comes in the form of discipline, a very sad, tragic thing happened to David right after that, right? Bathsheba had a baby from David, and what happened to that baby? He died, right? Seven days after he was born, he died. See, we can look at that and be like, Lord, that's so harsh. Why would you let an innocent child die? We know that that child went to heaven. The scriptures tell us that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But the point of that was God forgave David, but he was trying to cleanse David. He was saying, David, I don't want you to ever fall into this again. 
and I know what it's going to take for you not to fall into this. It's going to take a painful lesson. And sometimes that's how the Lord has to cleanse us because he doesn't just want to forgive us. He wants to prevent us from falling back into that same thing over and over and over again. See, confession, it's so important. And yes, we're called to, to confess to God. And yes, he, he will forgive us. And yes, he will cleanse us. But how often do you confess to the Lord? Is it, is it a daily thing? Is it like every hour thing? Is it a weekly thing? Is it like whenever I think about once a month type of thing? Or is it happening on, on a regular basis? See, if we're not confessing sin to God, the implication is, is that we don't believe we're in sin or that we believe that we haven't sinned. Now we have to remember that sin isn't just an action. It can be a thought. There's sins of the heart. See, the Lord wants us to confess so we can be forgiven and cleansed. But if we're not confessing, we're basically saying we're not sinning. And look what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The Lord says, yes, we're all sinners for all have fall, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wants us to acknowledge those specific sins, confess them so that we can be forgiven and repent from those things. See, the Lord, he comes into the temple, Matthew chapter 21, and he starts cleaning house, but he's cleaning house for their own benefit. Look what it says here in Matthew chapter 21. So he comes to the temple of God. It says he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. See, the businessmen are overcharging the people. Um, Now, the, the men of Israel, all of them were required to come up for three feasts out of the year. Many of them overlapped. You had the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of tabernacles. Okay. The seven main feasts all kind of are in that same time frame. We won't get into that, but the men were required to come up and in certain feasts provide certain sacrifices. Now, many of them had to travel a long way to get to Jerusalem and many of them on the way to Jerusalem Lamb might have got a hurt leg. Lamb might have got a cut on him. Whatever it was, they would bring sometimes unblemished lambs and the temple had other lambs. So if your lamb was blemished, you could buy an unblemished lamb for them, from them, so that you could provide a sacrifice that was going to honor God. Now, that was kind of a useful thing, right? If you hurt your sacrifice, you could buy another one. But what the businessmen are doing in the temple is they're charging them like 10 times more than what the animals are worth. And they would do things like this. Oh, that, that lamb has a blemish when it's not an obvious blemish. And they're, they would try to do whatever they could to convince you that your lamb or your sacrifice had a blemish so that you would have to buy one of theirs. It was extortion. They were taking advantage of the people. See, the businessmen are literally in sin in the house of God. They don't even care. See, they're not even being convicted of this thing. Jesus already corrected them back in John chapter 2, and now they're doing the same thing again. That points to a lack of conviction. Now, we can look at these businessmen and say, man, yeah, that's messed up. But we too can fall into a similar situation. What do I mean? We can fall into a place where we're in sin in the temple. We're in sin in the presence of God and think that it's okay. And it usually points to conviction or a lack thereof. Now, for the unbeliever, it would look like this. They're not sensing the conviction. They're in sin and the spirit just isn't convicting them of that thing because they haven't accepted the Lord and received the spirit. For the believer, we can do something called grieving the spirit. What is that? When the Lord said, hey, stop doing this, stop doing this, I'm telling you, please stop doing this for your own interest. And we do this grieving the spirit thing where we say, yeah, Lord, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to repent of that thing. I want this and I'll, I'll give you these other ones. But this one I'm holding on. I'm holding on tight. I like this one. This one is comfortable. See, when we grieve the spirit long enough, we end up doing something that's called quenching the spirit, meaning the spirit's not even convicting us of that thing anymore. 
Literally, God gives us over to our sin. When we choose our sin for long enough, he will give us the desires of our heart, whether it be for good or bad. And he says, hey, you know, I don't want to do this, but you've been grieving the spirit to the point that you quench the spirit. I'm just going to give you over your sin and you're going to have to face the consequences. I don't want that for you, but you're ultimately making your own decisions and you're not listening to me. See, the businessmen were already corrected about this, but they continue to fall into the same sin. And Jesus, he's not having it. So much so, he ends up driving them out of the temple. See, he was passionate about driving sin out of the temple. We too are called to be passionate about driving sin out of our temple. Point number two, drive out the sin in your temple. Drive out the sin in your temple. The Lord was passionate about driving out the sin in the temple. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His way is the right way. If we follow his way, then that way is going to look like, amongst other things, being passionate about driving out sin. What do I mean? In Matthew chapter 5, he says it differently. In Matthew chapter 5, Verse 29 and 30 says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus, to clarify, he's not being literal here, okay? He's not saying we should literally pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands. If that was the case, we'd all be blind without hands, right? He's using a a physical illustration to, to teach a spiritual lesson. What he's saying, in other words, be radical about the cutting away of your flesh, meaning do whatever it takes to prevent yourself from falling into sin. If there's a sin in your life that you keep falling into, go to radical measures to cut that thing out of your life. What does this look like practically? I have a pastor friend. He's been sober for about 20 years. Um, to this day, he won't drive anywhere without someone else in the car with him. Crazy, right? He won't even go to the gas station unless someone else is in the car with him. That's radical, but it's wise. See, not that we all have to do that, but that's, that's his cutting away of the flesh. That's him plucking out his eye. That's him cutting off his hand. It's not about... Yeah, it should be okay for him to go to the gas station. It's about what could happen. I don't even want to give myself the opportunity or the chance to fall into temptation. The Lord, he calls us to take radical measures to drive out the sin in our temple and the prevention of sin in our temple. It can look like locks on phones. That's people struggle with, uh, uh, with things on the internet. It can look like different forms of accountability. I don't know specifically what it looks like for you, but I know the Lord. He wants us to be passionate about these things that we wouldn't be okay with just continuing to fall into the same thing that we would truly not just confess, but drive out, repent of those things. He was so passionate about this. Look what he does again in verse 12. He drives them out. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the the seats of those who sold doves. He's literally flipping over tables. This is passion, but it's also anger. Anger, yeah, it's called righteous indignation. There's righteous anger. He's angry because of the unfair treatment that's being done to his people. The money changers and businessmen are literally a barrier from God's people getting to God. You're not worshiping unless you can pay this much for this sacrifice. And they were getting in the way. Jesus, he wasn't okay with that. In fact, he was angry about it and he allowed his anger to lead him to a place to make things different. See, his anger motivated change. The Lord, he gets angry at sin. Again, he's the way we too should be angry at sin. Point number three is just that. Be angry at sin. Be angry at sin. 
Now, some of you might be confused. Wait, I thought anger was a sin. Well, not necessarily. And the Lord's clear about that. He talks about being angry with your brother. And yes, that's, that's, that leads to murder. That's where it's a murder. It starts with you getting angry with someone. But that's not the same type of anger. Once again, it's righteous indignation. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Be angry, meaning anger can be a good thing. If we use it in the right way, see when anger is used in the wrong way, we can allow it to consume us and lead us to make decisions that we regret. But when we use it in the right way, there's the self-control that's been given by the spirit. We're using it in the right way. We're angry at the right thing. That thing being sin, that anger will lead us to change. Just as Jesus allowed his anger to lead him to change the situation, our anger can lead us to change our situation, meaning getting rid of the sin. Again, driving it out. Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. So he performs this act, right? Overturns tables, drives out the money changers and the businessmen. Flips their seats over. And then verse 13, he says, and he said to them, it is written. What does he do? He points them back to the word. Why is he pointing them back to the word? To expose them for their sin. See, God's word, it both defines and reveals our sin. He says, you're making this, this place, God's house, a den of thieves, which we'll get into in a moment. But the point is, the word of God does just that. It reveals and defines sin. Now, the problem comes when people begin to define sin for themselves. When I say this is what is sin and this is what isn't sin. If that contradicts with God's word, You're treading on on dangerous waters. That's a dangerous path to go down. But people do it all the time. Yeah, God might say that abortion, killing someone is sin, or he might say that uh, same-sex marriage is sin, or he might say that idolatry is sin, or pride is sin, or all these other things are sin, but I don't agree with them. I don't agree with what God's word says. But that's not how we ought to live. We got to look back to the word of God to define what sin is and what sin isn't. That's exactly what Jesus does with them. It is written. He points them back to the word to reveal their sin. When we begin to decide uh, what is sin and what's not sin, again, that's a dangerous path that literally will lead to our destruction. And when you look at the world today, whether it be America or other countries, the biggest problem is, is getting away from God's standard. See, it's this thing called relativism. Basically, the idea is what's true to me may not be true to you. There's no absolute truths, which is an absolute truth statement, by the way. The whole concept breaks down upon itself. But it's basically, well, this is morally right to me. It might not be morally right to you. Now, there is a truth that we're not to put our convictions on people, but there's another truth that God's word has to be the universal standard for what morality is. Every human on this on the face of the earth, whether they admit it or not, recognize a sense of morality where there's a moral law. There must be a moral law giver. Laws don't come from nothing. And if that moral law giver is the God that inspired the scriptures, he's given us the moral law. When we choose to depart from that straight to the left, straight to the right, begin to, to, to define what is and what isn't when it comes to sin, we're making ourselves gods. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Jesus, he doesn't even say, this is my opinion. He says, as it is written, look what he says, verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. A den of thieves, basically what he's saying is, is you've made this place a comfort zone for sinners. Meaning you are stealing from the people, you're committing sin in the temple, and you're good with it. No, that's not what this place is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Yes, the church is a place for sinners to come to be he- come and be healed. We're all sinners. All of us. But it's not a place where people should feel okay just sinning in the temple. 
Like that, that shouldn't be okay. Jesus is saying, uh, where's your conviction? Look at what the word of God says. You're making this place a den of thieves. How can you steal from God and God's people in his house? This place is not to be a den of thieves. It's called to be a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's one of the main purposes why Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's cleansing the temple so that people can pray. He wants the people to be able to come back to God. And again, the religious leaders are a barrier. They're preventing that from happening. That's what sin does. It it prevents us once again from coming to God. It doesn't prevent us just from getting in the word. It prevents us from praying. Sin is a barrier in our prayer lives between us and God. It says that, in other words, in Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59 Verse two, it says, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah tells us, hey, when when we're in sin, we're we're messing with our prayer life. We're separating ourselves from God so much so that he doesn't hear us when we pray. Now, it's not necessarily that God doesn't actually hear us. But it is this, what he's getting at is you're limiting God from responding to your prayers because you're in sin. How do you expect him to answer that prayer when you're in sin? He can't bless that. You're not leading a blessable life. Your prayers are being hindered. See, Jesus, he comes into the temple to clean house so that the temple can be called a house of prayer. And once again, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is calling us as individuals to be the house of prayer. Point number four, you are the house of prayer. You are the house of prayer. It's not just the temple. It's not just the church. Literally God, the God that created the universe lives inside of us for the believer. And he calls us as individuals to be the house of prayer. And sin prevents that. See, when we're in sin and we're not being the house of prayer, first we got to remember what that means. The fact that God lives inside of us means that we're each a representation of God. Literally, and I don't think we think about this enough. We can have encounters with people and people can literally encounter God through us. Literally, they can have an encounter with God through us. We are not God. But he lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit, and that power can impact so many different people. See, it's not just the power of God that we bear, it's his name that we bear. As a child of God, we bear his name, and his name, it means everything to him. He doesn't want his children bearing his name in a way that's going to bring him dishonor. So, when we do bear his name and bring him dishonor, We kind of put him in a corner. We force him to take action. We force him to, in other words, get destructive. See, when cleansing doesn't work, as it didn't, this temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, just as Jesus prophesied. He tried to warn them. He tried to tell, hey, I'm trying to help you out cleansing this temple. If you won't listen to me, I'm going to give you over to your sin. And your sin is going to lead to the destruction of your temple. It's exactly what he says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. And that's exactly what happens in 70 AD. But that's not just this temple. It's our temple too. If you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, See, Jesus is determined to make us the house of prayer. And when there's anything in our house that's preventing us from that, again, he'll go to radical measures to make sure that we become the house of prayer. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, speaking about us as individuals, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that God is going to condemn a believer. Uh, that, that's not what he's saying. But there's two things that he's really saying. If we continue to just allow our temples to be defiled and continue to defile his name. Now, we're all sinners, right? But there should be evidence of, of repentance and growth and all these different things. When we continue to fall into the same things and we just say, ah, I'm just going to keep doing it. I don't even care what God says. I, I know that I'm the temple of God. I, I'm going to keep defiling his name. Again, when cleansing doesn't work, he's forced to get destructive. He'll destroy our temples. Now, that could be deliverance through death. There is truth of that in scriptures. But more often than not, he brings us to that place of brokenness. Meaning, he crushes us. He gives us over to our sin and our lives. Misery, heartache, disappointment, all these different things. He's, hey, I'm just giving you what you wanted. Your sin leads to destruction or I'm destroying you. Either way, whatever, however you look at it, the point is if we continue in those same things, he's forced to get destructive. But it's for a greater purpose. It's because he loves us. See, Jesus, he only destroys our temple so that what? So that he can rebuild it, that he can restore it, that he can resurrect it. In Jeremiah chapter 18, in Jeremiah chapter 18, we see this is all context of the Babylonian exile and what God was doing with the people. He gives this illustration with this potter and this clay. God calls Jeremiah to this potter's house in verse one. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. So we see this is a picture of Israel, but it's also a picture of us. God's trying to mold us. God's trying to shape us. And when we choose our own path, our own will, we begin to shape ourselves. And when that shape doesn't look like the God, the shape that God intended, he's forced to start over. Okay, we got to start back to, to ground zero. That's what had to happen to me. I had to lose everything before I recognized my need for the Lord. He destroyed me to build me back up. And he does it with us even as believers, as we walk with him. If we continue to fall into the same things, he's forced to get, once again, destructive. But the destruction is only temporary. He destroys so that he can rebuild, so that he can restore, so that we can become the house of prayer. Now, you might say, uh, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. And I know Jesus is cleansing the temple because there's sin in the temple, but I don't know what, what the sin in my temple is. In fact, I had a, a, someone ask me a question at, at Lyft at Costa Mesa um, a month ago, and, 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 and we were talking about a specific topic. And, and she asked, hey, I don't know, I, I don't know what the sin, sin is in my life. Like, I don't know what Jesus would cleanse. Now, that's a little scary um, because that points to, to, to a little pride. And we know pride blind, blinds us, but we're all guilty of it. See, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. The Bible says, who can know it? Meaning, we don't even know who we really are sometimes. Yeah, we got a general idea, but sometimes there's things that are in our hearts that we're blind to, that need to be exposed. And the Lord says, through David in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 and 24. If that's you and you're like, man, I, I want to be the house of prayer. I don't know what that thing is in, in, in my life, in my heart, whatever it may be that's preventing me from becoming the house of prayer, that's separating me from God. David says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, I want to know, God, I know like, I know there's sin, but I don't really know what it is. So help me understand it, whether it's a sin of the mind or the heart or an action, regardless of what it may be. We got to be aware of those things so that we can become the house of prayer so that we're not prevented in becoming the house of prayer. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14 Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. See, Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple so that the people could pray. Jesus cleansed the temple so that the people could be healed. 
Now these people are able to come in, encounter God, encounter the Son of God, and be healed. Fifth point, cleansing leads to healing. Cleansing leads to healing. See, the Lord, it's not like he gets, he's so excited about coming in and cleaning house and cleansing our temple. It's because he wants the best for us. He doesn't want us to be prevented from communication, interaction with God, but he also wants us to experience healing. See, when we continue in sin, it leads to our destruction. And it's really from the enemy. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we know sin does just that. It robs us of happiness. It destroys our faith. But Jesus, he wants to get rid of those things. He wants to cleanse us again so that we can experience healing. Now, God has a responsibility, yes, to cleanse us, but we have a responsibility as well in the cleansing process. See, we talked about how when we confess to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as a believer, we're not just called to confess to God. We're called to confess to man as well. In James chapter 5, in James chapter 5, it says just that. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, confession to man, it, it leads to healing. But we don't always want to confess to man. Why? We're afraid they're going to judge us. I don't, they can't know about that. And that's the trick of the enemy. He'll convince you, hey, you don't have to tell anyone about this. You know that, right? Just confess to God for forgiveness. But don't confess to man. You know what happens? You rob yourself of healing. But he'll try to trick us. He'll try to persuade us. You can't tell anyone that. They'll look down on you. They'll judge you. They might not like you anymore. They might not be friends with you. That's the enemy. The Lord says, no, confess. I don't care what it is. Tell someone so that you can be healed. Do you confess your sins to someone? Do you have an accountability group? Could be your wife, could be your husband. I find for me, it's good to have multiple people, okay? There's certain things that it's better to tell to certain people, right? Certain things that I'm going to be able to connect with a guy better than a, a female. And I tell my wife so many different things. But I also have other people in my life. I got my brother, right? I have, I have Pastor Chet. I have Zach. I have people in my life that it's like, hey, I, I need to get this stuff out. I'm not going to come from the pulpit and just spill it all out. It's not that bad. <laughs> but the truth is we all need this. And see, when we convince ourselves that we don't, I'm fine, I'll just confess to God. Yeah, you'll be forgiven, but you'll have this burden that's just weighing on your heart. Why? And you wonder, I confess my sins to God, but I just still feel this weight. I still feel miserable. I still feel even condemned almost. Because you haven't gotten it out to a person. Now, maybe when you confess that to the person, you'll see the scriptures fulfilled that you will be healed. You'll experience that healing. That's just like, you ever feel like that? You tell someone something, you're like, oh, the weight's just lifted. It's gone. That's what the Lord wants. He wants to lift the weight. He bore the burden already. He died for all our sins from the past, present, and future. Yes, there's forgiveness, but he also wants healing. That healing comes through confession to man. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, Jesus isn't the only one that's angry here. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're angry too. But it's a different type of anger. See, Jesus was angry at sin. He confronted sin. The religious leaders are angry that Jesus confronted their sin. See, they were angry that Jesus corrected him, corrected them, that he exhorted them. How are you with receiving uh, confrontation? How are you with receiving correction? When someone calls you out for your sin, how do you take that? Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, that he who hates correction is stupid. It literally says that. He who hates correction is stupid. We're stupid. We're foolish if we don't receive correction. 
Now, many of us struggle with correction. Why? Because of pride. We want to be right. We want to be good. We don't want anybody to think that anything's wrong with us, but that's simply not true. There are things wrong with us. There are things that need to change. And if we're not receiving correction, then we're certainly not going to change. These scribes and Pharisees, because they weren't willing to receive correction, it cost them something. It cost them their souls. It cost them their salvation. Because they weren't willing to receive the correction from the word of God, they literally lost their salvation. See, when we're not willing to receive correction, it will always cost us something. It will always cost us something. Whether that's a relationship, flaws in relationships, marriages, friendships, sin in general, it will affect us and it will affect them. And if we're not willing to receive the correction and change, we're going to bring more destruction. Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. Uh, so they're indignant. Because not only that they were confronted, but because these children are crying out to him like they're mad about that. So verse 16, it says, and saying to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. So the scribes and Pharisees, they're not only indignant because they've been corrected. They're indignant because Jesus is receiving praise. They're indignant because the children are praising him. Hosanna, son of David. Those were references to the Messiah. Hosanna means save us now or save us, please. Son of David, that was an obvious reference to the Messiah. So the scribes and Pharisees aren't only upset that they were corrected. They're upset that their authority was questioned. They're upset that their authority was questioned. And they're now questioning Jesus' authority. How are you letting these kids cry out to you and refer to you as the Messiah? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, I am the Messiah. He points them back to the word again. He says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Meaning these children are here for this purpose, specifically to recognize me as the Messiah, specifically to praise me as their God. See, the scribes and Pharisees were questioning the Lord's authority. And Jesus basically, in other words, says this. If you're questioning my authority, you're really questioning the authority of God's word. If you're going to question my authority, your problem isn't with me. It's with the word of God. Because the word of God is talking about me. The word of God is all about me. In fact, I am the word of God. The word of God points to the authority of the son. And the little ones... They even recognize it. The little ones recognize something that the religious leaders didn't. Why? Because they're blinded by pride. They can't see their sin for what it is. They can't see their God for who he is. But the little ones, they recognize and they praise him. Matthew chapter 21, verse 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Jesus left them. Yeah, he left them with the word of God. See, they asked him a question. Why are you receiving praise? Jesus pointed them back to the scripture and he says, you want to know the answer? Here it is, the word of God. You have the opportunity to accept it or reject it. But he left them with the word of God. That's what the Lord does with us. You got a question? Here's the answer. Take it or leave it. It's up to you. See, Jesus, he comes in. He cleanses house. He delivers the word of God to them for their benefit. It's not that he's so angry at the scribes and Pharisees. He, he's angry that they're not getting it. He's angry at the sin in their lives. That's why he comes in and does this radical thing and cleansing the temple, literally turning over tables and throwing seats. He's, he's trying to make a radical impression so that they'll repent, so that they'll recognize him. Now, as we've been discussing, this message wasn't just for the religious leaders. And it's easy for us to do it. We always like to look at, oh yeah, like you Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, like these guys. But this isn't just for them. This is for us. 
And just as Jesus wanted to come in and cleanse this uh, this temple, so too does he want to come into our hearts and cleanse our temple. And yes, God has a responsibility in cleansing, but we have a responsibility in that cleansing as well. See, none of us are perfect. Be the first one to say that. And if we're not perfect, that means we need to change. There's things that need to be confronted. There's things that need to be corrected. The word of God, it demands that we change. It demands that we grow. Now, I'm not saying don't fall into a place of self-condemnation. That's from the enemy. But yes, conviction. The Lord wants us to be convicted when we're not doing the right thing. So that we'll start doing the right thing. See... (laughs) Jesus, he came in, he cleansed the temple, and he made it clear what their sins were. He pointed it out to them. He, he, he said, he pointed back to the word so that they would know what it is. And as I mentioned before, sometimes we know we're sinners, but we don't know what our sin is. We're not sure. And just as I shared that Psalm of David, that's where I want to end in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 to 24. If you're in that place and you're like, man, Wow, that was powerful what, what Jesus did in there. And I know he wants to cleanse my temple, but, but I don't know what he wants to cleanse from me. I don't know what that thing is in my life. I want to know, but, but I just don't know what it is. Pray that prayer. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Now, let me warn you. I try to pray this prayer as often as possible, as often as I can handle it. But when you pray this prayer, the Lord will reveal some stuff to you that you didn't see before. Will reveal some deep-rooted heart stuff. It might be some bitterness, and you look back to something that happened in your childhood. It, it, it might be some pride that you didn't even. I thought I was humble. Check yourself. I'm not an angry person. Why are you yelling so loudly? It's like I have patience. Really? It's like the Lord will challenge us in these things because He loves us, because He wants to grow us, and He'll correct us. But we got to be willing to receive the correction. It would be so sad to end up like the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, we can't lose our salvation, but as a believer, we can lose something. See, they lost their salvation for us when we're not willing to change, when we're not willing to receive correction. It will always cost us something. And the Lord, he only corrects us so that we can experience the abundance of life that he promised to us. He offers it, but sometimes we can make decisions that rob us of that. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be cleansed. He wants us to be healed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you did and how it applies to our lives and cleansing the temple, God. This is, uh, it's so hard to, to look at this and, and recognize this wasn't just an event, but this was something spiritual that you're trying to get across to each of us. Lord, that you want to cleanse our temples, God, and you're, doing, you're willing to do whatever it takes uh, to, to make sure that happens. Um, not because you're angry with us, but because you want intimacy with us. And, and, and as you say, our, our sin separates us from, from you, and, and you don't want that, God. So I pray, Lord, that you would search us, that you would try us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to understand what the sins in our lives are that need to change, that we would acknowledge them, we would confess them, and and we would repent from them so that we could ultimately become the house of prayer, so that we could become healed. Lord, so help us, give us the strength to endure, endure those things and the trying and the testing. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.